All right, so I'd like to welcome you to my first podcast. This is actually really exciting because this is actually my first episode. And I know we just got done with Easter week, but I've, I wrote this message for a youth group and I thought it was very impactful and I wanted to share it with you. So we're going to talk about Easter, but we're going to talk about how we know that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. So without any more... Uh, shenanigans let let's get started all right so it's easter time it's time to eat candy and marshmallow eggs and it's time to pig out but don't you think there has to be a better word for pig out i mean as it were pig out is a euphemism so is there a better word for euphemism i mean hey Try to think up a shorter word for abbreviation and a synonym for a thesaurus. So while I was getting prepared to write this message, I was thinking about a couple things. Why is it doctors call what they do practice? Why is it to stop Microsoft Windows you have to click on start? Why is lemon juice made with artificial flavor and dishwashing liquid made with real lemons? Why is the man who invests all your money called a broker? Why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called rush hour? Why isn't there mouse-flavored cat food? Why do they sterilize the needle for lethal injections? Why don't you ever see the headline, Psychic Wins Lottery? Why are there Braille labels that drive up ATMs? Why are they called apartments when they're stuck together? And why can't women put on mascara with their mouths closed? Oh, and there's one more. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ such a big deal? I mean, there's got to be an if-then relationship. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what? We deal with if-then statements every day. For example, Chris Baker said at one point in his life, if I go to medical school, then I can be a doctor. Columbus said, if the world is round, then I can get to the east by sailing west. Enrico Fermi said, if we can just split the atom, then it's going to produce a whole lot of energy. Bill Gates said, if I copied the Apple Macintosh desktop, then people would like Microsoft Windows more. Keith Horrid said, if I learn to play the bass guitar, then I can get hot chicks. So what's the big if-then statement for the resurrection? If Jesus rose from the dead, then what? What are the implications? Does it affect my life more than the fact that I live in 2016 AD? If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then does that affect what time I get up in the morning? If Jesus rose from the dead, then does it affect my situation at school or what's going to happen at work tomorrow? If Jesus rose from the dead, then does it affect March Madness or election season? If Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead, then what does it affect? Does it affect anything? Is the resurrection a big deal or is it not a big deal? We have to come to this conclusion in our faith of Christianity. What is the resurrection? But before we get to the part about whether the resurrection means anything, we have to come to the conclusion that he really died and he really rose. So before we get into scripture, we're going to be in John chapter 20 today, but I just want to give you some startling statistics. Now, if you're listening to this, I would hope you grab a pen and paper and jot down some numbers. Let's start with us. Being struck by lightning in a year? 1 in 700,000. Being killed by lightning in a year? 1 in 2 million. Becoming president? 1 in 10 million. A meteorite landing on your house? 1 in 180 trillion. You eventually die? 1 in 1. So now let's go to Christ. I'm going to give you eight things that he did 
and the probability of them, and then we're going to do some math at the end. Christ being born in Bethlehem, 1 in 280,000. John the Baptist was a forerunner for Christ, 1 in 1,000. Christ entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, 1 in 100. Christ betrayed by a friend, 1 in 1,000. Christ betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, 1 in 1,000. 30 pieces of silver cast to buy a potter's field, 1 in 100,000. Christ silent at trial, 1 in 1,000. Christ crucified, 1 in 10,000. That adds up to 1 in 28 octillion. 1 in 28 octillion. That's the probability of Christ doing 8 of those things. He fulfilled over 200 prophecies. So, did he rise and from the dead? Did he die in the first place? I would say yes. Yes, because we have to take the Bible what it is, and what it is is facts. So today we're going to go through John 20, and I'm going to give you three facts. I'm going to give you three facts about how you can prove that Jesus actually rose. So let's start in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Before we go any further, let's look at the first word, early. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene. Early, dark, Mary. She didn't get up and grab a cup of joe and go about and have some hot cakes and some hash browns with some ketchup and maybe a couple fried eggs. No. She got up while it was still dark, while people were still sleeping, and she went to the tomb. The commitment was real. The commitment was real with Mary. And the commitment to a dead man, who she presumed was still dead, was real. So today in the 21st century, is our commitment to a living king as real as her commitment to a dead man? See, she thought Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior, but she thought he was dead. We believe that Jesus Christ has risen again, but what's your commitment look like? What does your commitment to the king look like? Are you getting up early to praise Jesus? Or are you going, grabbing yourself a cup of coffee, sitting down, doing some work, going to work, coming home, relaxing, maybe say a quick prayer and doing whatever you want? Or are you getting up early to seek Jesus? See, she got up early. She sought Jesus. So she goes to the tomb where, where two guards are, right? And... She has no way to move that stone. She, If she got there and saw the stone was still there, she could not see Jesus because she wouldn't be getting into the tomb. Two guards were supposed to be there. They had fallen asleep. A crime that would jeopardize their lives. So, there's a one to two ton stone blocking the entrance that has been removed. Now, for those of you who might say, well, there's this theory about a stolen body. Yeah, but the disciples fled from Jerusalem because they didn't want to be caught and killed. Why would they then do something that would make them get killed if they were found guilty of stealing the body? They wouldn't. They wouldn't do that. That is illogical to think. So let's go on. 
verse 5 through 7. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Okay, so, so when Jesus' body had been laid to rest, it comes to this point in Nicodemus pours 75 pounds of incense on the cloth. So the cloth weighs 75 pounds, and, and the cloth is a mixture between toilet paper and a mixture between uh, paper towels. So it's that kind of cloth with incense and on it, and the body's not there. But the cloth is there. So if someone had stolen the body, why would they unwrap a man and leave the cloth? See, if someone was trying to actively seal the body and they knew that they could be killed for trying to do such a thing, why would they risk any time and unwrap the body? And like I said, the, this cloth is heavy. You want to sit there and unwrap him, and, and it's even more prevalent because this cloth is folded. Not only is it off of Jesus' body, but it's like he got out of bed and folded his clothes before leaving his house. That would be what this is. See, if someone came in to your office and you had a computer, that they, they wouldn't make sure nothing was out of place, they would probably take the computer and run. They wouldn't make sure your office was neat when they left. But the tomb was neat. The tomb wasn't a mess. Cloth wasn't thrown everywhere. The cloth was folded up, had piece separate from the body piece, and it was lying there. This is illogical to think that Jesus' body was stolen once again. It doesn't make sense. Something had to happen where he got up. Something had to happen where Roman soldiers fell asleep. Something had to happen where the stone was removed. Something had to happen. And here, in verse 11 through 17, we'll see that this actually did happen. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why, have you, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried on Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have yet, uh, not yet ascended to the Father. Go and sit to my brothers and tell them I am intending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Okay, so we know there's four gospel writers, and we know that Mary Magdalene shows up in each gospel, right? So, so we come to this point where, where Mary Magdalene is in each gospel, and, and she's a woman. This makes no sense. To go even further, John puts her at the, at the place where Jesus is resurrected. Makes no sense. To go even further, John puts her at the place where Jesus appears to her and only her. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. Women were not respected in that culture. Women were not cared for. Women were hardly loved. Women were property. If, if these gospel writers were, were 
making something up, making up the biggest hoax in history, why would they include a woman? It's not believable. To spread the gospel in that time, you wouldn't include a woman in any part of the gospel, yet alone the biggest thing that holds the part of your faith inside of it. See, you have no faith without the resurrection, so why would John go as far as put a woman at the scene? You would just, he would just mention himself and Peter there. It makes no sense. So that's why this had to happen. And not only did it have to happen, it did happen. Because Jesus decided to appear to a woman. Okay? So this is how, this is how women were treated in that century. Just, just to give you a little peace of mind. Women had to have two head coverings when they went out in public. Women couldn't talk to strangers. Women could only talk to their brother, father, or husband out in public. And they were property of those three people. They belonged to no one else. They were no one else's. No one else could tell them what to do except those three people. They were second class citizens. So this is what I like to say about women in that time. And this is why women wouldn't be used in this story if it was made up. Women were unreliable. Women were useless. Women were second class. And the last one is very simple. Women were not men. See, you can't appear to a woman and still be making up this story because it seemed absurd. So see, on Easter Sunday, you're going to come to a place where the pastor says, he is risen, and people are going to sit in their chairs, and they're going to look forward, and like most people in church are, they look bored at some point, they're going to repeat back, he's risen indeed. And it's going to sound all mumbled because there's going to be a hundred people or more talking at once, and, and see, the pastor's just going to move on, but instead of saying, he's risen indeed, when, you, when someone says, he is risen, you have to answer emphatically, he is risen indeed. And then, and then what I would do is I'd say, he is risen. And then you would say even louder, he is risen indeed. And then you'd go one more time and I'd say, he is risen. And then you'd scream, he is risen indeed. Because he has risen indeed. See, so, so we come to this understanding of, He's risen, but what does the rising give us? Is, is the rising for his own glory? Is the rising so he can be like, ha, you all were wrong? Ha, you don't know me? Ha, I proved you wrong? No, no, that's not why Jesus rose. If Jesus is a God of love, that's not loving. Jesus didn't rise for himself. This is why he rose. Let me tell you. First John 2.25, and this is what he promised us eternal life. He gave us a promise. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's by the way of the Son. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is a gift. It was a promise because he gave us his son, which was a gift. See, so, so back to how I opened this. We, I could sit here and I could give you a, a great theological thing about an if-then statement about Jesus Christ. But it, it just wouldn't be correct. I would be 
wrong. And this is why. I just told you that Jesus Christ rose, and I gave you three facts that you can prove that he rose. I gave you three things he said that shows us why he rose. So then why would I give you an if-then statement? It's not if, it's since. Since Jesus died and rose, we have the opportunity to receive eternal life. Since, not if, since. So this is how I'm going to close it. The Easter story ends not with a funeral, but with a festival. It demands not our applause, but our allegiance. Not our compliments, but our capitulation. See, the Easter, Easter doesn't end at the cross. It ends in the garden. Jesus doesn't ask for us to be cheerleaders on the sideline applauding him. He asks for us to be with him. He doesn't ask for our compliments about what he did. He asks for us to have capitulation, which means to surrender to him. He asks for us to yield to him. So see, I know Easter was a couple weeks ago, but this, this holds true throughout the year. We may celebrate Easter on one Sunday, in one month, in one year, but that's never what Easter was intended to be. See, Easter is 24-7, 365. It's early in the morning and late at night. It's lunch and dinner. It's breakfast and dessert. Easter's every day of every second of every minute. Because that's the point of Easter. The point of Easter is not for us to come together once a year and, and rejoice at the rising of our Savior, but you can rejoice at the rising of the Savior any second of any day. Because that's why, why He died for us. People just don't get saved on Easter. They get saved whenever they hear the message of Jesus Christ. They get saved through the Holy Spirit. It, Easter is just a day. It's just a day that the world likes to give you chocolate and give you bunnies. But Easter for the church has to be about Jesus Christ. And Easter for the church has to be every Sunday. Because that's why Jesus died. So let me close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your death. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. I thank you that you gave it all for us. You, you paid the price for us that we could never pay. The, you died the death that we could never die. Jesus, I want to thank you, and I want to challenge people to, to rejoice in Easter every day instead of just one day in one year. Lord, I just... Pray that we can glorify you through email. Thank you for listening to the Marino League podcast. I hope to see you back next time.